Hi guys, welcome to another Tea with Twiggy. I'm very excited this week because I'm meeting somebody that I don't know, but I'm a big fan of. He's a writer, he's a comedian, he's an actor, and I think he's probably the king of podcasts. And his name is Adam Buxton. Adam Buxton. Hello. I can't believe I'm talking to you. Hello. This is probably, yeah, this is just about the most exciting moment in your career, I would imagine, Twiggy. <laughs> face of the 60s. All through the 60s, you were thinking, yeah, it's fine being the face of the 60s, but when am I going to meet Adam Buxton? <laughs> but you are the king of podcasts, sir. No, I'm, I'm thrilled because I'm a big fan. And when you posted that picture of um, yourself in place of me on the David Bowie pinups cover um, yeah. last well last month wasn't it January I just thought I've got to somehow get in touch with you <laughs> yes I posted I photoshopped my face on top of your face on the cover of the album pinups mm-hmm. and uh, I th- I did that a while ago actually after Bowie died we actually no before he died we did a special to coincide with the exhibition at the VNA and uh, the David Bowie is exhibition and I do a show called Bug a live show where I introduce music videos at the BFI South Bank and I sit on stage and talk about them and stuff and we did a Bowie special at the VNA as part of the David Bowie is exhibition and uh, as Part of my preparation for that, I did some stupid fooling about and part of that was photoshopping my face into various <laughs> album covers that I particularly liked. And one of those was uh, the pinups cover. And so it was quite cool to find out that you'd seen that. Oh, I lo- well, I hadn't seen it in when you first did it. I saw it when yeah. where, my, my, well, my daughter Carly saw it and she sent it to me and then I reposted it on my Instagram because I thought it was brilliant. Oh, cool. I most recently used it as the image to go with a Spotify playlist of some of my favourite Bowie songs that I posted on his mm. birthday this year. Uh, well, you know, along with you, I, I was, well, am am a huge David Bowie fan and I, was, I just feel thrilled to bits that I actually met him and got to work with him very briefly yeah doing that um but the the amazing thing about that photo because god when it must have been about when did he do pinups you probably know was it early 70s wasn't I'm not, it I'm, I'm always lousy on dates but I yeah, would I say am. 73 or something like that it was after Aladdin Sane yeah anyway it was early 70s and he contacted, no, it was Vogue, actually. Vogue said, because he was, I don't know when you were born, but he was huge. 1969. Oh, so you were baby, so you don't remember this. So I should tell you. Yeah. So he was huge at that point. <laughs> and um, Vogue had this idea, English Vogue, to do him and me on the cover of Vogue. And we, we thought it was a brilliant idea and he thought it was a brilliant idea. And he was recording in Paris. So I flew to Paris. We did the picture, which I think is a fab picture. He loved it too. And then Vogue, in their great wisdom, <laughs> the editor said, I can't, I can't put a man on the cover of English Vogue. And we hmm. said, why not? You're, in, you're insane. You know, number one, he's the biggest thing at the moment. Number two, you can actually credit makeup with David because he was made up like I was. And um, but they wouldn't budge. So David said, "Oh, you know why they're fuffing about? I'll put it on the album cover." So it's had a much longer life. Yeah. Because every time it's re-released, it's out there. Has had there never been a man on the cover of Vogue at that point? There hadn't then, apparently. English Vogue. I don't know about American Vogue. Yeah. It just seems such a stupid reason. That, well, I know, suppose gender and and concepts of male and female and things like that were far more fixed which was part of the reason that Bowie was such a a, a delight and a shock to a lot of people mm. because he was playing around with those things of course when actually at that point not that many people had started to bend the rules well you know he 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 was very androgynous in his look 
of course, many people were impressed by your look around uh, that time and in the late 60s because you had that very androgynous mm. gamine thing going on. Yeah, very. Yeah, it was it was kind of. I suppose I didn't know it at the time, but I was in when I was kind of discovered out of the blue in 66. I didn't look like the archetypal model of the day because mm-hmm. they were all very sophisticated and um, very tall. <laughs> and I, I was this funny little thing. But it was kind of a new look. You know, it was that kind of thing that happened in the 60s where teenagers suddenly were given voices and they had the choice to be able to go out and buy things and they didn't want their mum's clothes so they needed people to show those off and there I was I didn't know it at the time but because that's what I looked like I you know I didn't have the short hair but I had the I used to paint the eyelashes on and all that at weekends not at school because I was I was at a grammar school so we weren't allowed makeup but so you know that that look came out of just the way I happened to look. Mm. I mean, I can remember in New York doing a I was in doing a session for American Vogue, and some journalist tried to get in into the dressing room and he was thrown out. But um, because he he said, "I know she's a boy, really." No <laughs> He's way! Mad. Absolutely mad. She's an elfin boy. She's scrambling my conception of. Gender roles. <laughs> and I believe it well, is because he is an elfin boy. I know. I got in, in a cab in New York in those. And when I went in, there was a lot of press and everything. And I got yeah. in a cab in New York and the cab, you know, they all talk to you in New York. And everything. Yeah. And he said, hey, you have that twiggy girl on you from England. And I said, yeah. yeah. He said, oh, you, you got a cute little face, but you're no Marilyn Monroe, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Flipping egg, Tucker. That's the thing, isn't it, though? that's the, they, they couldn't get their head around like, well, girls have curves. They're curvy. And guys are straight. And they're straight up and down. So what's going on here? Why is there like a little weird pixie boy? I know. That's not exactly. right. It's so weird. People's perceptions of what they think it should be and what it shouldn't yeah. be. John Cooper <laughs> Clark. You know, uh, the poet John Cooper Clark. Yeah? Yes. I'm listening to his audio book of his memoir at the moment. It's fantastic. Is it? Oh. It's so good. And he, I mean, I'm I'm uh, several hours in and he's still in his teens. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it's really good. Like he writes, it's a kind of a social history of the 50s, late 50s, 60s, growing up in the 60s. And it's really fantastic. All the fashions he goes into and he talks quite a bit about how they changed and what a revolution it was when you came on the scene and how they noticed everyone changing and suddenly girls looked different and the kind of girls at parties were Mm. different girls. A whole section of women who had different body shapes were suddenly invited to all the parties and were the cool (laughs) girls to be hanging around with. It's funny because I actually wasn't, I wasn't a big party. I I, I was so busy working and travelling. And, you know, you've got to remember I was a really kind of shy little girl and I would listen I thought they'd all gone mad when that happened to me so you know I wasn't like out there and doing it I mean I was working very hard and traveling all around the world but I didn't really do the party stuff much probably why I'm still here (laughs) I was gonna say you looked after yourself that is I mean that a lot of people didn't make it through the 60s I know and I saw a lot of that and I saw you know you kind of saw it around you but, you know, I was just, I was very influenced by my dad, who was a good northern lad. He was from Bolton, very sensible. And I think I got hit most of his genes because I'm pretty sensible and pretty kind of grounded. But it was mainly because of my dad who would say, you, you know, you, you don't want to do that, Leslie. Not, not good news. Yeah. <laughs> and he was right. Bless him. Now, your dad, I read, was a travel writer, right? Yes, he was. He was the, for a long time, he was the travel editor of the Sunday Telegraph newspaper. And because of that, we got to travel around the world and go to amazing places before really traveling to foreign countries or traveling anywhere beyond Europe was something that a lot of people did. You know what I mean? Like Mm. going to America 
in the early 70s was just not affordable for most people. Mm. And it was only when Freddie Laker and all those cheap airlines started coming along and enabling people to fly transatlantic for, you know, 100 quid, less than 100 quid, that America suddenly became a realistic destination for families and holidays like that. But we got to travel around America right through the 70s. And my dad was very much at the vanguard of popularizing the US as a family travel destination in the 80s. So we used to go there two or three times a year for much of the 80s. It was great. I loved it there. Oh, man, it was so exciting. And I bet. How, so kind of and, from what age did you go with him? I mean, as young as I can remember, really. I've been going through all my mum and dad's photographs, oh. uh, boxes and boxes of slides. I bought a fancy scanner. You can probably see it behind me there. Look at this monolith behind me there. Oh, and, my goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's huge. And I've been spending weeks and weeks just scanning all these transparencies and finding loads of beautiful shots that my dad took. He was a good photographer of us traveling around the US going on because because he'd take us all and then he'd write about it. So so it wasn't like, you know, it was all work. And um, it was such fun, though. And we we hired a big Winnebago camper van and drove across Wyoming and Montana and Texas and places like that. Mm. He loved the Wild West, that big, giant countryside and, you know, the Grand Canyon and places like that. And so we were doing that when I was very little. I've got photographs of me standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon at aged uh, one or two, barely able to walk. And there I am teetering on the edge. My dad obviously thought it was a funny photo, but um, my mum always used to say, oh, I hate that photo. I can't look at that photo. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She must have. Oh, how yeah. <laughs> But it was it was great though. I I I loved it, and and we went to almost every. I think we went to every single state in the U.S. at some point, and we went to Hawaii and Alaska. We stayed on a floating fishing lodge in Alaska, and you could see grizzly bears on the side of the river on the side of the shore. You know, it was amazing. We had an, a very lucky and and privileged upbringing in that way. I say that's an amazing thing to give a child, actually, because, you know, as you said, especially in those days, most families from England couldn't have gone to America because it was so expensive. Yeah. But um, what was your favourite place you went? Can you remember? I loved Hawaii. Everything about Hawaii was magical and dreamlike and it smelled great and it was beautiful and there was a spectacular sunset every evening but they also had all the mod cons, you know, you'd stay in a hotel and there would be a big arcade and video games were at the peak of their popularity in the early 80s. And I absolutely loved them. And so I would beg my parents for a stack of quarters and uh, head off to the arcade and play Space Invaders and Cubert and Robotron and Donkey Kong Jr. and all this stuff. And then, you know, go off to the beach and splash around in the beach. And then you have <laughs> supper and outside and and they'd have these big luau things and people dancing. And um, what's it called when you go underneath underneath the pole? Limbo dancing. Limbo. Something? There when you, you have to go under. Yeah, there you there go. You limbo go. dancing. All that sort of stuff. <laughs> they did that. Maybe I'm confusing that with Jamaica where we also went. But anyway... Just stuff like that, you know, it was it was so wonderful and it was like um, a kind of cliche of a fairy tale. And Americans in those days, I don't know what they're like now, but they were very good at maintaining that mythological aspect to the American experience. And they were so friendly and easygoing. It was such a contrast to life in England in every conceivable way. People in England were gruff and um, fairly unfriendly and very formal on the whole, you know. But you go to the U.S. and it's like, hey, how are you guys doing? Oh, what a cute accent you have and all this stuff. I think they still are like that. Are they? I mean, they're so friendly. I always say, because I used to go back and forth to America a lot, 
and I lived in LA and I've lived in New York. And if you if if I if I was traveling alone, you ended up sitting next to somebody who was American. By the time you got to America, you'd know their life history, you know, and who they would been married to and how many children they've got and what, you know, everything. And right. if you sp- sat next to an English person, you might just about know their name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after they told you their laugh. name, they'd be so angry and disgusted that you talked to them that they would ask to be moved to a different seat. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> the be- who's the best done. person you've ever sat next to on an aeroplane? That's a good question. Uh, mum, 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 who, well, I sat next to a psychologist once and uh, I had been upgraded to business class, maybe even first. No, it was it was sort of business premium. You know, generally they have the they have kind of economy standard class and then it's business, which is just economy with slightly wider seats. And then it's business premium, which sometimes can be pretty amazing, <laughs> like first class. And nowadays they have a kind of crazy first class where everything's gold and there's a shower and there's, you, you know, you can marry people and all sorts of stuff. But I think I was in the one down from there in business premium or something, feeling pretty pleased with myself. And this was back in the day. Like You can tell how long ago this was because you could smoke. And um, they were bringing round ciggies and I was um, a smoker and I said, yeah, I'll have some ciggies. And so I just sat there smoking and getting absolutely hammered and chatting to this woman who was a psychologist. She must have been 10 or 15 years older than I was. And I just got a bit tooty and we had a really great, deep conversation. And um, she ended up giving me her card and saying, well, look, if you ever need any therapy, then give me a call. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have the card anymore. Otherwise, I would have, I would have called her a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I think she was probably out of my financial league. <laughs> well, the best person I've ever sat next to on a plane when I was on my own yeah. was Jacques Cousteau. No way. Yeah. And I got really excited. I couldn't believe it. When I sat down and saw, I saw him in the lounge. I think we were flying from New York to London. It was a long time ago. And I saw him in the lounge and I thought, oh my God, I hope he's on my flight. And then when I got on the plane, he came and sat next to me. He was absolutely amazing. Did he know who you were? I think so, but, you know. But we mainly talked about what he did because, you know, I mean, I am I'm I was such a huge, huge fan. And it was the time when all his programmes were going out and, you know, on, on, the, on the TV and, you know, all the uh, uh, undersea adventures that he had. And he talked about that a lot. The undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. It was amazing. Like before in a world, I mean, David Attenborough was doing things in those days, but Jacques Cousteau absolutely owned the ocean as far as TV was concerned and everything beneath it. He said, I'm going to tell you a secret that nobody else knows. He said, I I keep my money in a sock. (laughs) (laughs) And he got out of his briefcase a long black sock, thick sock, and that's where he kept his money. He said, so nobody will ever rob me. That isn't what I expected Jacques Cousteau's secret to be. I thought he was going <laughs> to lean over. He's had a couple of wines. The altitude is having its effect <laughs> on the oxygen mixture in his mind. And he leans over and he says, you know, Twiggy, I have never told anyone this, but I can speak to the octopus people. Oh. And they are very, they have a lot of secrets. <laughs> uh, have, you seen the, have you seen the documentary, My Teacher the Octopus? No. Is it wonderful? I haven't seen it yet, but people keep recommending it to me. Octopuses are basically, as far as I can tell, they're sort of like aliens who understand humans. They have human responses to things. There's loads of stuff online you can look up with octopuses behaving in a very intelligent and weirdly human way. How extraordinary. Oh, I'm going to... I should look that one up. Anyway, I've, I've not, I haven't asked you yet, but are you a tea drinker? Yep, I am drinking some tea and I'm drinking... Uh, what have you got? I'm drinking Yorkshire tea. I find Yorkshire tea does the job. I have a giant mug. It's a friend's 
central perk I'd mug. I'd say that's huge. Yeah, it's like... It, <laughs> that's a huge mug. It's sort of between a mug and a soup bowl. And I generally don't finish because <laughs> it's so giant that the tea is almost always cold by the time I'm about two-thirds of the way through. So I have a ritual <laughs> where I leave my shed where I am right now and I go back across to the house and I sling the cold dregs of the tea against the wall and uh, enjoy myself. And sometimes I do it too hard and it splashes back in my face and I'm all soaked with tea and I feel like a bit of a dick. (laughs) Now, I've got to ask you, because it's my favourite, one of my favourite bits of your podcast is when you start and you go for your walks with Rosie. How is Rosie? Oh, man. I wish I could give you a upbeat answer she's fine basically but as i speak she is at the vet and we are quite worried about her she oh i think she's going to be fine my wife my wife is more worried than i am um but it's been weird she's been ill recently we gave her some maybe i shouldn't go into the details of what we did because there's like weird conspiracy we gave her some pills for like fleas and ticks but we hadn't given her them in pill form before and it turns out we went, we, my wife went online and it turns out there's loads of people posting online like, don't take these pills because their dog loses their appetite. And that's exactly what's happened to Rosie. Anyway, the vet says she's fine, but she's in for observation. I hope she's okay. I don't know what I'd do if anything happened to her, but it's very unsettling. Like normally, normally she's the, she's the kind of emotional anchor of the house. You know what I mean? Like, Everyone, you know what it's like in a family. Very, very seldom is everyone fine at the same time. Someone is always in a mood. Some some <laughs> drama is always happening, at least with one member of the family or the other. And the exception is Rosie. And you can always, no matter how bad things get, you mm. can get a smile from Rosie and you can go and sit on the sofa and she will try and lick you. And she will stare into your eyes with her dog eyes and lay her head on your lap and everything's fine. And so to have her be uh, what my dad used to call a bit piano and a bit down in the dumps and off her food is really strange. And I hope I hope she's fine. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure she maybe she's just had a reaction to the tablets. No, I, I think that's probably what it is. But I just hope it's. I'm sure she'll be fine. I mean, look, I'm I'm the one who's telling my wife she's fine. She's fine. The the vet's going to say if she's on death door, death's door. But the thing is that now my wife googled the symptoms online, and now her head's full of all these paranoid catastrophist scenarios that she's got from the internet. I'm like, don't diagnose things from the internet. That is rule I one. Know. You should never do that. That's insanity. She's like, I know, I know, I know. But look, look, it all makes sense. I'm like, what are you? You're going to be into QAnon next. Stay off the internet. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, if, if I always think if you have something wrong with you, not don't look it up no on the way, internet man. because it always, I'm sure she'll be all right. So am I. She'll be fine. But because those bits on your, the beginning when you're walking with her, it's so lovely. Yeah, it's, she changed my life. away and Rose is there. I was a, I was like my dad. I was oh. a bit of a grump when it came to dogs. My dad was known as a dog Nazi. In fact, he was very hardline racist against dogs. <laughs> and I don't know what his problem was. He didn't like the chaos that dogs cause, you know? He didn't like it when they would bound into a room and knock things over and get licky and start trying to have sex with people's legs and all that great stuff that dogs do, (laughs) as well as obviously the (laughs) random defecation. He just found all of that totally appalling and he didn't understand why anyone would put up with it. And so he'd be in someone else's house and the big dog would bound in hello 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 start humping things and knocking things over and my dad would just go get that bloody dog out of here and it wasn't his house and it wasn't his dog you know and he just like he was really zero tolerance but then towards the end of his life actually he was really sweet with rosie i think you know when people feel that their time is running out their appreciation for all living things just blossoms you know and uh, he loved Rosie, but I think Rosie Aww. could sniff a dog Nazi, and so she was a little wary with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
<laughs> so I presume you never had a dog as a child? No, so we never did. Um, it wasn't practical because we travelled so much. So oh, yeah. even though we did lobby for pets, it never really happened. And um, I ended up being a bit of a dog grump myself and sort of thought, you know, if I if I was staying with very doggy people and they got upset if something happened to the dog or the dog had to do this or that, I'm like, flipping heck, Tucker, it's a dog. What's the problem here? And now, <laughs> of course, I totally understand. But even when we did first get Rosie, I was pretty grumpy and I said, all right, fine, we'll get Rosie. Because the thing is that our son, when he was very little, he kept on saying, please, can we get a dog? Please, can we get a dog? Please, can we get a dog? Please. And eventually we gave in because he, he was, um, we thought that it would be a good bargaining chip. You know, we could force him to do all the things that he didn't want to do if, if we got him a dog. <laughs> and we thought, teach him a bit of responsibility, take care of a living creature. It's got to be good. It'll be good for the boy. Of course, you know, and we thought, get him out of the house, go for walks, all that sort of stuff. He never did any of that. Never. And it ended up you exactly <laughs> the way I thought it was going to be, which was that mainly my wife and then me had to do all the work and all the clearing up and all the feeding. Actually, it's my wife mainly who does everything. But um, I got into taking her for walks. That was, the, that was the thing that I did that no one else would do, was just go out and go for a walk. And that's really how the podcast started, because I would take my, my little recorder that I do my intros with and... Um, I'd talk to myself. It was a, it was kind of therapy, really. I'd just chat about whatever was happening and come back feeling unburdened. I, and, and the act of recording, it's a bit like keeping a journal. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I used to keep a written journal, but I found it difficult to keep up. And I found that if I went out for a walk with Rosie, I could do the same sort of thing, except as an audio journal. And then that uh, sort of morphed into the podcast, really. So I have Rosie to thank. <laughs> that's lovely yeah. that's such a lovely story you you live in norfolk yeah yes we yeah we live just outside norwich and but we're right in the countryside lovely. so it's pretty good i really like it most of the time but sometimes you do feel a little isolated and certainly in the last few months i mean it, yeah it's been a bit lonely it's nice to be with my family but you know the sainsbury's trip which i only do once every few weeks really is the only time i see other people now in covid times so it is a bit lonely and if it, if it weren't for the walks i'd go nuts yeah how have you coped and your family how have you all coped through this living nightmare really <laughs> i can't think of anything else to call it yeah um okay yeah fine i mean you, you know i always feel obliged to acknowledge the fact that we are in an extremely fortunate position in every conceivable mm. way out here. So, um, you know, when you, when you watch the news and you're reminded of what some people's lives have been like and the people on the front line and mm. the doctors and the nurses and the kind of unending, unbearable pressure, and then to have it, and then to have people outside the hospital who don't believe it's happening. I mean, that is how you can continue to do your job and sacrifice your time and your energy and your morale to that degree when you've got people who are so deluded boggles the mind anyway it does. um yeah we've been okay we've been all right and we've had you know happy times that we wouldn't have had if it weren't for the fact that we're all here together my sons are teenagers now so there's a good chance that over the last year we would have seen very little of them if we hadn't been locked down together, because if it was up to them, they'd be out carousing probably. Uh, and I'm grateful <laughs> for the fact that I have had this time with them. So what, you've got two boys and a girl, yeah? Two teenage boys, one a caveman and the other a book-loving aesthete and um, a young daughter who is kind of great and she's just so upbeat and clever not to say that the boys aren't, they're great in their own ways. There's no favourites, but my daughter's amazing. Women are better. <laughs> How old is she? 
Uh, she is 12 right now. So she is in the process of transforming into someone who is a little, well, she has her own mind. So whereas in the past, she just thought I was nonstop brilliant. Now <laughs> she has moments when she finds me a little bit tiresome, but it's okay. I remember in the past when she was really like when she was five or something, I remember very clearly thinking, oh my God, one day she's not going to, she's not going to feel the same way about me anymore. She's not going to find me so delightful. And I was so depressed by that prospect. But actually, like everything, you know, it kind of happens and it's not so bad. They're still there. Yeah. And it, it, and, it changes. Um, you know, my, my daughter. Exactly. I, you get other compensations. Yeah. My daughters are grown up now. And, um, and we, we are really, really close. But, um, but there were times, especially in teenagehood, because, they, you know, they've got to spread their wings. And, and the first time she went off to, she didn't go to boarding school till she was about 15. She just went for the last couple of years. And um, I remember going back to our flat. And as soon as I opened the door, I just burst into tears. I mean, she was fine. <laughs> it was me. It's that, you know, the beginning of, you you know, you're letting them off the lead. And it's very emotional. Mm. But Yeah, I'm really, I'm not looking forward to that bit. I think my, my eldest son is due to start uh, university later this year. And um, it's been a really protracted process of getting the exam results and the assessed grades and resits and reapplying. And, oh, my God, it's been a total ball ache but finally he got into a place that he really wanted to get into and it was a, a night of celebration when we found found out but almost immediately I felt like crying because it was like oh no he's gonna go yeah I'm I'll miss him so much yeah it does that's life I'm afraid isn't it it is I've got the new joy of grandchildren so you have all that to look forward to yeah and then you right. fall in fall in love all over again <laughs> yeah fingers crossed I hope so that that would be wonderful but um I guess it was quite good really that you behaved yourself in the 60s you weren't one of those parents who would have to be constantly saying do what I say not what I do <laughs> No, I was I was pretty boring. I was pretty pretty kind of. I mean, the only bad thing I really did was smoke. I smoked cigarettes because everyone uh -huh. smokes it. I used to smoke jitan because I thought they were. You know, when I when I was sixteen and a half, I I did my first job for Elle magazine in Paris, and all the models who were older than me were all smoking jitan, and they smell so lovely. And I thought, oh, I want. I'm going to do mm -hmm. that. <laughs> so after. You know, coughing my heart out over the first few, I I I then started smoking them, but I never really drank. I remember being in Paris and doing the Paris collections and going to a restaurant and a waiter saying, "What wine do you like?" And I said, "No, can I have a Coca Cola, please?" And he said, "What vintage, Madame?" And stormed off. <laughs> He couldn't believe anyone would drink Coca-Cola. But I was 17 years old. I yeah. mean, I was, so, I was so straight. It was boring. <laughs> but I say that's probably why I'm still here. <laughs> well, you obviously knew who you were and you weren't. I mean, that is such a fortunate thing for you because so many people in that industry and in showbiz really want something, need something. There's a hole in them that needs to be filled and you know, some auteur or genius comes along and says, I, you're great. I see something in, in you that uh, I can provide for you and uh, come out and let's take all the drugs and we'll find it together. And they go, yeah, yeah. okay. No. And then 10 years later, it's all over. It happened. It happened. And I met people that it happened to as well, seeing it happening. Now, I was, um, I think I was... I mean, I think mum and dad had a lot to do with it, but I think I was I was lucky, among other things, really. Did Mainly because ever... I was scared to try things like that. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> I was too, mm. but I... Boring. <laughs> no, it's not boring because, I mean, you're, you're going to, you know, you're, you're reaping the rewards right now. You have your grandchildren and your children and... Yeah. They're happy Absolutely. and they're healthy and 
that's a big deal. I loved your podcast with lovely Billy Connolly, who, who's, who's a great old mate of ours, actually, and I love him to bits. And it was such a beautiful piece. It made me cry, actually, because hmm. it, it's, you know, with what he's going through as well. Yeah. But um, you, I, th- I think it was on that one. It might have been another one where you talked about you went to boarding school and that you did you hated it. Yeah, that's one of my... That's one of the topics in my conversational jukebox that keeps popping up over and over again. It's sort of dead dads, dead mums, boarding school, uh, David Bowie. Anyway, yeah, I di- I mean, I think that I ended up really enjoying boarding school and finding that it was a a very intense and exciting experience, but only because I think initially I had been traumatised. I really think that that's true. And I remember I used to hear people talking about boarding school in those terms and saying that it traumatized them. And I and I would think, oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. You know, it's like, come on, you snowflake. Because I think my mum was a little bit like that. She was like, oh, nonsense. It's fine. You're fine. You know, nothing bad happened to you. It's not like you're in the war or something. It's like, yeah, OK. But actually, it is really upsetting to be separated from your family. Mm if you love them, that is, and if they love you. And I was lucky enough that mine did, and I, I loved them. And we were having a great time, and then suddenly, age nine, it's like, oh, by the way, you're going to boarding school next term. It's like, what? 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 And they would keep on talking about, like, oh, it's going to be fun, it's going to be great, you'll have midnight feasts, and you'll make all these friends, and you'll have japes and larks. <laughs> I was like... Uh, that's okay. I'm fine for japes and larks. I'd, uh, what would be better is to s- not go and to stay here with you because that's where I want to be and it's nice. And um, yeah. But they had friends who uh, sent their children to boarding school, so they kind of did what their friends did because my parents, my dad wasn't really from that world himself. His parents had been servants and um, he had been, you know, he his parents encouraged him and, and, and gave him a lot of opportunities so that he would better himself, as it were, you know, and be a bit of a social climber and a social mm-hmm. mover. And so my dad really took advantage of that opportunity and very much gravitated towards the British establishment. That was the life he aspired to and that he admired. Mm-hmm. And going, sending your children to boarding school was part of that image that he had of, of what it took to be yeah. the kind of person that he wanted to be. And also, you know, they thought we'd like it. They thought it would be fun, which it was, as I say, eventually. But for the first year or year and a half, it's really bad. And it's like, wow, this is my worst nightmare and it's come true. My parents have gone and I'm in this weird institution and I don't like anyone. And there's grumpy matrons who come around in weird nurses' uniforms and shout at you. And the food's horrible. And you can't get out. You can't get away. And it's it's t- terrible. <laughs> but then, but then you start meeting people and you start bonding with the other children who are also having a terrible time. You know, like you you sort of go out in the woods and you sit and you. Two, you know, two little nine-year-olds crying and crying because they're so lonely and homesick oh. and they just want to go home. But then you make friends on that basis and that kind of friendship is very mm. intense. And I went to a co-ed boarding school. So I think from a kind of Mickey Mouse psychological perspective, I invested very heavily in my emotional relationships with girls, especially maybe missing my mum. I don't know. I'm improvising here. But... um <laughs> I would just fall in love with all these girls and and have passionate uh, love affairs aged 10 and 11, you know. Um. Nothing physical, obviously, at that point, but lots of love letters and just saying I love you the whole time and then then kind of kissing in the end-of-term film. And it was really electric and fun. (laughs) And uh, so it, it 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 was an extremely kind of potent emotional adventure 
Was that Westminster? Because you went to Westminster, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Oh, was that was Westminster afterwards? Yeah, Westminster was afterwards. By that time, I'd been sort of institutionalised and the idea of actually going back home and living with my parents in London again was less exciting and less desirable than actually continuing that life of independence and living with uh, other people of my own age and, and just having those intense experiences. But then Westminster, when I went to Westminster, which was all boys for the first three years or something until the sixth form, that was crap again because it was just boys and I there was no girls. I was like, where's the girls? It's just all these terrible boys. <laughs> and like, you know, 13, 14-year-old boys, are the, they're the worst people in the world. They're horrible and boring and shitty and mean. And I count myself, I was mean as well, you know. And everyone bullies each other relentlessly. And it's just awful. <laughs> and I just missed talking to girls so much and, and just hanging out with girls and kissing girls and everything about girls. But again, oh. eventually, you know, you make a new set of friends. I met Joe kissed joe all the time he, he, he loved it and um so is that where your partnership began for you know what you went on to do telly and lots of things with him yeah exactly joe joe was a big this is joe cornish i'm talking about who's my yeah. comedy wife your comedy wife <laughs> and uh he is now a super successful director he's got two movies under his belt attack the block and the kid who would be king and uh, he's working on a Netflix show. I don't know why I'm doing publicity for Joe right now. But anyway, he was a real... Because you love him and he's your friend. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do love him. But he was great. He was one of those people who was just... He was the guy that was doing things. And people would gravitate towards him. He was a sort of Bowie figure in that way. You know what I mean? Just full of enthusiasm and energy and schemes and, and a kind of... Um, belief in himself that was really infectious and he would cherry pick people around him that could help him realize his visions and his dreams. He wasn't doing it in a manipulative way, I don't think. It was just fun to be around him and to do plays and to make short films and draw comics in class and just piss about. And he had a, he was funny. He was six months older than I was as well. So at that age, early teens, that's kind of a big deal. And he was taller than I was too. So he, yeah. he just seemed like the senior partner. <laughs> That's lovely. And so, so you left at the same time? Yeah, we did. And how long was it before, after you left uh, Westminster that you joined up to do, to do work together? Man, it must have been nearly, nearly 10 years or something that before we started actually getting paid to work together. Immediately after Westminster, I just didn't really know what was going to happen. I didn't really get into any universities for a while. And I drifted into catering. Um, I got a job oh. in a restaurant and then I became a bartender in the West End. And then I got sucked into the whole West End bartending scene, which was really fun, <laughs> <laughs> even though I drank way too much and... Um, I kind of, yeah. Well, you had that to was, test all the drinks. <laughs> I had to test all the drinks, and I did. I tested all the drinks. Um, Midori ended up being my favorite. That's proof that I really did test all the drinks. You know that stuff, that green melon liqueur, Midori. Yum. Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> and so I did that, but Joe, Joe went off to film school and... Um, he was in his own film school bubble for a while, but we always used to come back on weekends and hang out in London and carry on making stupid videos and um, making each other laugh and stuff. So eventually it was me, actually, uh, that ended up sending in some tapes to a Channel 4 show at the time that was like a public access show called Takeover TV, very early iteration of... Mm -hmm. of DIY TV on terrestrial television because the whole concept of public access was an American thing, really, and people in the UK weren't that familiar with it. The idea that you would broadcast something homemade, something that a, any old Wally had made on their video camera, was bizarre. It was an oddity. 
And so we kind of bust in on that first wave of, of homemade video. Um, and Joe ended up, you know, he ended up helping me with a lot of these early jobs that I got, first of all, on TakeOver TV. And, and then we got a commission to make our own TV show, which was called The Adam and Joe Show on Channel 4, which we did for like yeah. four series. Seems unbelievable now. That's amazing. Have you ever done actual stand-up? Well, I came to stand-up quite late because I think I got to the point after we stopped doing the Adam and Joe show. So in the early 2000s, I was drifting around, really. I didn't really know what to do. Joe was off helping Edgar Wright with film things. We were still doing a few things together, but we were a bit rudderless. And I remember watching a show called Edinburgh Nights that used to report from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and they'd show acts that were on there and have interviews with comedians. And I just thought, well, that sort of looks fun and it doesn't look that hard because we'd never done anything like that before. And in fact, we were a bit snooty, if I'm honest, me and Joe, about the stand-up world. We didn't really have that much interest in it. And we thought most stand-up comedians were stupid and boring <laughs> and up themselves which is turns out to be partly true but um we loved tv and cinema and you know we wanted to make tv and and we were into video and we were into all that stuff so stand-up seemed a bit a bit boring by comparison but in the end i got over myself and i thought well look i i better give it a go and see if I'm any good at it. And I wasn't. But what I did do was I started doing characters because I was too gutless to be myself. Like I, I wasn't one of these people who could get up on stage and just talk to the audience as myself. It was too terrifying. So I ended up doing lots of different characters and I ended up incorporating video stuff when the technology became available. Uh, I used to, I, you know, I got a projector and I hooked it up to my laptop and eventually what happened was I started doing Bug in 2007 and I got the opportunity to not only be on stage, but to connect my laptop to the screen, the giant screen in NFT one. And that really transformed my relationship with being live on stage. And that was a good new beginning to, to my career. And I used to read out stuff from YouTube when YouTube was still young. I suddenly, I remember the day that I scrolled down beneath a video that I was watching and I was, I suddenly saw that people had left comments there. It was like, wow, look at all this. These people have left comments underneath this video. What a massive waste of time. And I started <laughs> reading the comments and they were so ridiculous that I wrote them down and I read them out at the next bug show. So this was 2007. Uh -huh. YouTube was still only about three years old or something. And uh, and then that became a real staple of my live shows for a long time is reading out YouTube really? comments. Still is from time to time. Well, I take my hat. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone gets on the stage and, and on their own. Um, it's so I mean, it's scary getting on stage anyway, but I've, I've never actually got on a stage on. on well, I've, I've done a concert, but, but that's singing. That's different. But to get up and talk and and make people laugh, it's. I should think one of the scariest things in the whole world. <laughs> it's scary when it's clear to you that they don't like you and they don't want you there. <laughs> then it's really scary. Do they and boo, very do sad. they boo and shout or are they are, no. they don't? Oh good. <laughs> if it was booing, that would be better because then you'd be kind of a hero. You'd be like, <laughs> "They were booing and I did it and I survived and I'm the king of the world." Screw them. They don't get it. But with me, it's all the it's all the middle ground that's way worse. It's like they're just quiet and they, they want you to do well, but you're letting them down. And they're looking at you with slight pity in their eyes. That's way worse. <laughs> do you have do you have a favorite comedian? Oh man. I mean, I was talking to Stuart Lee on my podcast the other day. I think he's really riveting even though sometimes he, he winds you up and he just, he takes you on a journey when you watch his stuff and he's playing around with your expectations as an audience member and he's teasing you and bullying you sometimes and he walks a very fine line between 
being just a massive dick and being <laughs> really funny and interesting. I think he's fantastic. Did you love um, Robin Williams? Because I thought he was, I thought he was genius. He was good, but but for me, he was because I wasn't into stand up then. You know what I mean? So oh, okay. so to me, he was just a he was a film star, mm. and uh, we got into him, me and Joe, that is, from just going to the movies. And when Good Morning Vietnam came out, we were very impressed with that and the riffs that he would go on. But yeah, I think that in those days we we found comedians a bit tiresome because they would always go on talk shows and um, they would do the same bits well, because right. <laughs> I think it was the early days of, you know, pre, pre-internet. People just assumed like, well, not everyone watches the same TV shows, so I don't have to change up my material every time I go on TV. But actually, people like me and Joe did watch everything on TV. So we were like, <laughs> oh, no, he's doing this bit again. Come on, we've heard that one. Well, apparently, I mean, I forget who who I was talking to, and they were saying years ago, like in, you know, vaudeville and music hall and all that, comedy acts would have an act, you know, either a stand-up act or with somebody else, and they it would be one act, and they because there was no TV and there was no, obviously, no internet, they'd have that act for years and years and just go round the circuit of theatres, and they could do the same act because it was a different audience everywhere they went. And they would, you know, live or die on that kind of one act, which is amazing, really. The good old days. <laughs> and you could just you could just eke out an entire career on more or less 15 minutes yeah. of material. Just tour it around and go, hey, nice to see you, Newcastle. Now, you haven't seen my 15 jokes, have you? <laughs> well, here we go. And then off you go to the next town and but it's do amazing it all again. To think that they would survive on one or may- maybe they had one or two acts, but they would just do that for years and years and years. And I suppose yeah. with some, well, with all performances, that television can burn things out, can't they? You know, if you're you're on too much, you just blaze through material on TV. Mm. It's it's awful, and you feel so guilty if you repeat anything. You know, I just feel mortified. Oh, no, I've done this before. Yeah. People are going to be so angry with me. I saw you do this before, you idiot! It's like, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, spend, I'll spend longer trying to generate some new stuff. But the thing is, you know, you want to do the old stuff because the more you do it, the better it gets. Yeah. And But there's this real sense in comedy that it relies on surprise. And if the surprise element is not there, then you are worse than a monster if you're trotting out this stuff that people have heard before. You know, because I always feel like, well, if you go and see a band, you want the band to do the hit. You want the band to do all the stuff that you know best. And when they start doing the new stuff, that's when you go off to the toilet. But (laughs) with comedians, it's supposedly the opposite. Although, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't mind. There's some comedians, like I really like a guy called Brian Regan, an American comedian. And I've seen Brian Regan doing shows where he'll take requests and people will call out, do the bus stop bit. <laughs> and so he'll do the bus stop bit. And everyone knows the punchline, but they're delighted because it's Brian Regan doing the bus stop bit. Have you learned anything new in lockdown that you wouldn't have learned before? Like something that you never thought you'd write or... Well, you know what? When I when I was talking to Ronnie Wood, he surprised me because he knits. I just the, the the vision of Ronnie Wood rock star <laughs> knitting. He's a really good knitter as well. So I wondered if you found some secret thing that you didn't know you could do. Um, that I didn't know I could do. I mean, I have been getting into cooking, not really cooking creatively. I get these things like I get a delivery box. Mm recipe box and it comes with a little recipe pamphlet and I follow the recipe absolutely to the letter but I've learned some of them so I improvise a little bit now and I vary it up with my cauliflower roast cauliflower taco bowl I'm trying to like I do just vegan and vegetarian ones because it encourages me to be more vegan and vegetarian-ish are you Um, a vegan and vegetarian then no no I'm not but uh (laughs) But I don't eat that much meat at all anymore. 
And I find that I'm happiest when I'm not eating meat. I don't eat red meat and I've more or less cut out chicken. I don't like chicken. And I am happiest now when I'm eating some roast veggies. And I, I was a very picky eater when I was young. So things like tomatoes, which up until, actually up until lockdown one, I hated tomatoes. And then I just thought, okay, come on, here we go. Lockdown fun. And I had some cherry tomatoes and they were pretty good. Oh, they And lovely. so, yeah, things like that. That's been quite nice. I've also been doing quite a lot of music. But I mean, the bad thing is that my eyesight is really suffering and I'm worried about the damage I'm doing to my eyes because I've just been in front of my screen so much more. But, um, but I have been having fun, like making music on Logic Pro and just downloading endless kind of virtual instruments and pretending that I am a musician. And have you had to do homeschooling, yeah? Yeah, we've had to do that. It's fairly well taken care of, so we don't have to get that involved, I'm happy to say. So they just log on in the morning and they're mm. taken care of. Um, I mean, the main thing is just is just preventing yourself from completely coming apart and boozing every night and just mm -hmm. eating cakes all the time and and you know ensuring that the children don't do that as well it's like yeah just one pizza a day is fine guys you know <laughs> <laughs> but it must be i i actually you know because we've been fine really I, I just miss miss my kids and my grandkids and that's really hard for me because you know i'm very hands-on with them but but apart from that, we've been fine. It's just, it's teenagers I feel sorry for, actually, because, you know, at that age, you want to be with your mates or you want to fall in love and, you know, and that's kind of, oh, just be with your friends and do things teenagers do together. It must be really hard for them. Yes. The things that teenagers do together and the things that teenagers <laughs> do on their own in their rooms to make up for the fact that they can't do the things that teenagers do together. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. Like, I'm not worried about that, but it's like all the things that they must be doing that I don't even want to think about. <laughs> the things, I mean, if it was me, the 16-year-old me during lockdown, oh my God, I would have been up to everything. I would have been drinking everything I could find. I would have been sneaking things like exploring, digging around in my parents' things. I, it would have been a disaster area. But um, my children just don't seem to be like that unless they're very successfully hiding it from me. I'm not sure. Well, you've brought them up very well, That's obviously. Right. No, my wife is the one that I need to thank for that. Oh, listen, it's been such a joy talking to you. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for, for agreeing to have tea with me, albeit virtually. Maybe one day we can have, have a proper cuppa. That would be wonderful. And I hope, um, I hope that we can just rehash this entire conversation on my podcast at some point. I'd love that. That would be fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, Twiggy. Very nice to meet you. Well, I think I've made a new friend in Adam Buxton. What a lovely man and interesting career and lifestyle. And I really enjoyed talking to him. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I look forward to meeting him in person one day. See you next time. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy, or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye.
You just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.